Today's episode of Podcastle is brought to you by Audible.com. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash podcastle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle 201, Giant Episode, for March 19th, 2012. Golden City Far, by Gene Wolfe. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anna Schwind, and... Why, no. I have no idea where Dave went. Why would you ask? Here, just let me hang up these dungeon keys on the hook there. There, that's better. Listeners, how have your dreams been of late? Perhaps while you sleep you enjoy a refuge from the daily grind, pastoral scenes of surpassing beauty and peacefulness? Or maybe your dreams are more a recurrent series of anxious encounters where you're naked in front of a crowd or forgot to show up for final exams to that all-important class. Maybe you dream lucidly, aware that you are dreaming, controlling the progress, rewinding as necessary, furnishing the universe of your dreamscape at will. Or maybe you're one of those people who says they don't ever remember their dreams, and maybe... Since they don't remember, they don't dream at all. I always think people who tell me that are lying. But that would be a silly sort of lie, wouldn't it? It's just inconceivable to me to spend all that time dreaming and then just discard everything upon opening one's eyes. Author Carolyn Ives Gilman once said to me, Why do we privilege the waking reality over the dreaming one? I don't know, Carolyn. Good question. Could it be because of the material permanence of the waking world? But were the dream world to have a similar permanence, or the waking to have more impermanence, which should we consider the primary, and which the secondary? Today's story is Golden City Far by Gene Wolfe. It's a longer story, a Bildungsroman that asks us whether both realities, the dreamed and the wakened, reflect one another. And if so, how? But before today's story, I dreamed I was supposed to tell you about Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, smartphone, and MP3 player. Listen whenever and wherever you want, in just the same way you are listening to PodCastle right now. Get a free audiobook download when you sign up today at audiblepodcast.com slash podcastle. There are thousands of choices at Audible, and I know a number of people who like to listen to audiobooks as they drift off to sleep, setting the tone for their dreams. I just finished reading, in text, the third of N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance trilogy, The Kingdom of the Gods, and I discovered that the first two books in the trilogy are available at Audible. Check them out. I guarantee these tales will sweeten your dreams. As will Golden City Far. Gene Wolfe, the author, has written numerous novels in hundreds of short stories. He's won multiple Nebulas, Locus Awards, and World Fantasy Awards, including the World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement. In January, his book Home Fires came out from Tor, 
And two weeks ago, his short story, Dormano, was published online at Tor.com. So there's more where this came from. As a curiosity, let me whip back the curtain for a moment and tell you that this is the first story we've ever run at Podcastle for which no electronic copy was available. We had to send a physical copy in the mail to our reader. Our reader today is Kane Lynch, who's read several stories for us here at Podcastle, including Harrowing Episode 149, Honing Sebastian, and the memorable Episode 77, Nine Sundays in a Row. He's a cartoonist and filmmaker who lives in Berkeley. Check out his magic realist webcomic, The Relics, at kanelynch.com, The Relics. The final chapter was posted just last week. And now, either sleeping or waking, enjoy the story. Golden City Far by Gene Wolfe, read by Kane Lynch. This is what William Watcher wrote in his spiral notebook during study hall the first day. Funny dream last night. I was standing on a beach. I looked out, shading my eyes, and I could not see a thing. It was like a big fog bank was over the ocean way far away so that everything sort of faded white. A gull flew over me and screeched, and I thought, well, not that way. So I turned north, and there was a long level stretch and big mountains. I should not have been able to see past them, but I could. It was like the mountains could be looked through. It was like the thing I was seeing on the other side was higher than they were so that I saw it over the tops. It was really far away and looked small, but it, it was just beautiful. Gold towers, all sizes and shapes, with flags on them. Yellow flags, purple, blue, green, and white ones. I thought, well, there it is. I had to go there. I cannot explain it, but I knew I had to get to that city, and once I did, nothing else would matter, because I would have done everything I was supposed to do, and everything would be okay forever. I started walking, and I was not thinking about how far it was at all, just that it was really nice that I had found out what I was supposed to do. Instead of thrashing around for years, I had it. It did not matter how far it was, just that every step got me closer. Cool. He could not think of anything else to write, but only of the golden towers and how the flags had stood out stiffly from them so that he had known there was a hard wind blowing where the towers were. And he would like that wind. Someone passed him a note. He let it fall to the floor unread. Mrs. Durkin took him by the shoulder and he jerked. Billy? It was hard to remember where he was, but he said, eh, Yes, ma'am. The bell rang, Billy. All the other kids have gone. Were you asleep? Thinking that she had met when he had seen the towers and flags, he repeated, Yes, ma'am. Daydreaming. Well, you're at the right age for it, but the period's over. He stood up. I, I should have done my homework in here. I guess I did. Some of it. I, I, I want to get to bed early. The sea was to his left, the ground beneath his feet great stones, or shale, or soft sand. The mountains, which had appeared distant the night before, were so remote as to be almost invisible, and often vanished behind dunes covered with sparse sea oats. There was a breeze from the sea, and though the scudding clouds looked threatening, it did not rain or snow. He was neither hungry nor thirsty, and was conscious of being neither hungry nor thirsty. It seemed to him that he had been walking a long while, not hours or days or years, but simply a long while time as it had been before anyone had thought of such things as years or centuries. He climbed dunes and rough, low hills, and beyond the last found an inlet blocking his progress. Long before he reached the point near which she lay, he had seen the woman on the rock in the water. She was beautiful and naked save for her hair, and her skin was as white as milk. In one hand, she held a shining yellow apple. He stopped and stood staring at her, 
and when a hundred breaths had come and gone, he sat down on a different rock and stared some more. Her eyes opened. Each time he met her gaze, he felt lost in their depths. You may kiss me and eat one bite of my apple, she told him. One bite, no more. He was frightened and shook his head. One bite will let you understand everything. Her voice was music. Two bites will let you understand more than everything, and more than everything is too much. He backed away. The sun peeped from between the clouds, bathing her with black gold. What color is my hair? Perhaps its black was only shadow. Perhaps its gold was only sunlight. He said, Nobody has hair like that. I do. She smiled, and her lips were as red as coral, and her teeth sharp and gleaming white. Men have found themselves in difficulties biting my apple. He nodded, certain it was true. But kiss me, and you may do anything you wish. I, I wouldn't be able to stop, he told her, and turned and ran. He woke sweating, threw off the covers, and got out of bed. The house was dark and quiet. The alarm clock meant to wake him for school said five minutes past four. He carried his books and notebooks to the dining room table, turned on the light, and began to study. In study hall that afternoon, he wrote in his spiral notebook. One time, Mrs. Bates said, how do you know this is real? Maybe what you dream is really real, and this is a dream. How can you tell? People argued about it, but I did not, because I know the answer. It is because what you dream is different every night. Waking up, you are wherever you were when you went to sleep. Last night, it was kind of the same as before, but different, because the city was gone. Anyhow, I could not see it. I met this girl who tried to get me to say what color her hair was, only I could not. She wanted to kiss me, and I ran off. He made a small round dot for the final period and read over what he had written. It seemed inadequate, and he added, I would like to go back. He stopped upon the summit of a hill higher than most and turned for a last look. She was standing on her rock now, sparsely robed in hair fire that cast shadows upon her white flesh that was black as paint. One hand held up her shining apple. When she saw he was watching her, she raised the other, kissed it, and blew the kiss to him. For one brief instant, he saw it fluttering toward him like a butterfly made of cellophane. It touched his lips, soft and throbbing and redolent of flowers that bloom under the sea. He shook and could not stop. A long time after that, when she and her inlet were many hills behind him and he had long stopped trembling, he saw a black and white dog. It had a long and tangled coat, a long and feathery tail, and ears that would not stand up quite straight. He had never had a dog, but the people next door had a dog very much like that, a dog named Shep. He had played with Shep now and then, and he whistled now. The dog turned to look at him, pricking up the ears that would not quite stand up straight. It was some distance away, but came trotting toward him, and he felt himself trotting to meet it, and stroked its head and rubbed its ears. After the two of them went on together, the dog trotting at his heels, climbing and descending hills, which gradually became less lofty and less rugged, sometimes catching glimpses of the sea to their left, where waves flashed in sunshine like mirrors, or stalked from darkling sea to darkling land like an army of ghosts. The alarm clock was ringing tinnily. He got up and shut it off, stretched, and looked out the window. There were leaves, mostly brown, on the broken sidewalk in front of the house. He tried to remember whether they had been there the day before, and decided they had not. Later, as William shuffled through the leaves, Shep joined him and accompanied him to the bus stop. He petted Shep and declared him to be a good dog, and found something strange in the way Shep looked at him, some quality that slipped away no matter how hard he tried to grasp it. On the bus, he told Carl Kilby, He looked right at me! Usually they don't want to look you in the face! That was weird! 
Carl, who had no idea what he was talking about, grunted. In study hall. Last night, I found this dog that looked exactly like Shep. Maybe it was him. He was a nice dog, and we were way out in a pretty lonely spot. I did not even see the ocean toward the end, so I was glad to have the dog. Only, what was he doing way out there? He was just walking along like me when I saw him. I have never had the same dream three nights. Not even two that I can remember. Billy? Well, if it happens tonight, too, I hope the dog is still there. Mrs. Durkin touched his shoulder. The period's over, Billy. Uh, Just a minute, he said. I want to get this down. A kiss chased me and landed on my face. It was inadequate, and he knew it, but with Mrs. Durkin standing beside him, it was the best he could do. He shut his notebook and stood up. I'm sorry, Mrs. Durkin. She smiled. The other kids rushed out at the bell. It was kind of nice to have one who wasn't eager to leave. He nodded, which seemed safe, backed away, and went to his class. The dog was still there, lying down as if waiting for him. The weather was the same. The city he had seen had been on the other side of the mountains. He felt certain of that. He could see the mountains far away, a low blue rampart. He and the dog walked on together until the dog said, Chief? God bless you, he told it, and leaned down to pat its head. Chief, would you maybe like a drink? It seemed entirely natural, but somehow deep underneath it did not seem natural. Not surprised, but somehow, deep underneath, thrown a little off balance, he said, Sure, if you would. There's a nice spring not far from here, the dog said, cold with a sort of drink-me-and-be-lucky flavor. I could show you, he said, sure. But when they had gone some distance, he added, I guess you've been here before. "Uh Uh-uh, the dog said. Okay, then how do you know about this place? I smell it. When they had climbed another hill and the spring was in sight, the dog said, It might not work for me, only for you. The dog drank the water just the same, running ahead of him and jumping fast. There was a pool in the rocks, not too wide to jump over, from which a rail ran. He went to the other side and knelt. I've never drunk out of a dog's bowl, he thought. So this is a first. It was good water, as the dog had promised it would be, cold and fresh. He had no idea what luck was supposed to taste like, so he tried to analyze the flavor, which was very faint. It was a taste of rocks and pines and chill winds, he decided, with just a little touch of sunshine on snow. Does he always follow you around like that, Bill? Sue Summer was blonde and beautiful, and he knew he was apt to stammer like a retard. He also knew he had to answer. He said, No, just just yesterday and today. He's a nice dog, but I don't know why he comes to the stop with me. She smiled. You ought to take him on the bus. I'd like to, he said, and realized as he spoke that it was true. I'd like to take him to school with me. Like Mary and her little lamb. He grinned. Sure. I've been laughed at before. It didn't hurt much, and it hasn't killed me yet. It was Friday, which meant assembly instead of study hall. He would save his dream in memory, he decided, and write it down in study hall Monday with his weekend dreams, if there were any. Probably won't be, he told himself. From his notebook. The craziest thing happened today. We got back from church, and I went up to change back. I was putting on my jeans, and there was this bird singing outside. Singing lyrics. I thought, this is crazy. Birds don't sing words, and I tried to remember how they really did sing. I could remember the tune, but it seemed like I could not remember the words. I kept telling myself that there were not any. I put on a CD, loud, and pretty soon the bird flew away. Now I cannot remember what the bird sang, and I would like to. Something about him and his wife. It, it rhymed with life, I remember that. Building a house and don't come round because we won't let you back in. 
Okay, I went outside right away, and the Picar's dog started following me. I thought, my gosh, is it going to turn into the dream, the, the hills, the rocks, the dwarf on the horse and all that? And Am I crazy? So I walked about three blocks with Picar's dog along the whole time. We got to the park, and I sat down on a bench and petted the dog some, and I said, Listen, this is serious, so can you really talk? And he looked right at me the way he does and said, Yep. What is your name? I said, and he said, Shep. I was going to ask if he remembered the naked lady with the hair, only he had not been with me when that happened. So I asked about the lucky water we drank. Did he remember that? He said, Yep. He says he cannot talk to other people at all, only to me and other dogs. The dwarf said all that stuff about riding on the scabbard and riding on the blade, and I was not sure I remembered it. I still am not. So I asked him about that, and he... Billy, would you run an errand for me, please? He looked up and shut his notebook. Sure, Mrs. Durkin. Thank you. Wait just a moment while I write this note. She wrote rapidly, not scribbling, but small, neat, business-like script. When she had finished, she folded the paper, put it in an envelope, and sealed the envelope and wrote Mr. Hoff on it. Mr. Hoff is the assistant principal. You know that, I'm sure. Yes, ma'am. I'd like you to take this to him, Billy, and I want you to wait for a reply, written or oral. If the bell rings before you get it, you are not going to your next class. You are to wait for that reply. Leave your books here. I'll give you a note excusing you when you come back for them. He explained about the waiting to Mr. Hoff when he handed him the envelope. Mr. Hoff looked slightly baffled, but told him to wait in the outer office. Sue Summers sat with him on the bus going home. Sue got off with him, too, although it was not her regular stop. Chef had been waiting at the stop, and she petted Chef until the other kids had gone. Then she said, What's bothering you, Bill? You could tell, huh? I talked to you twice, and you didn't hear me. At first, I thought you were ditching me. I wouldn't do that. The second time I saw you, you were just so deep inside yourself. He nodded. Now you look like you're too big to cry. What is it? F first period, he cleared his throat. I won't be there. I I've got to go to the office. Are you going to tell everybody? She shook her head. She was wearing a guy's shirt, jeans, and very little makeup. She was so lovely it hurt to look at her. I, I've got to talk to the psychologist. They think I'm crazy. She put her hand on his shoulder. You're not. You'll be fine. He shrugged. I think I'm crazy too. I have crazy dreams. Everybody has crazy dreams. N not like this. Not the same thing, night after night. About me? She smiled. Yeah, kind of. How did you know? She smiled again, impishly. Maybe I'll tell you. Maybe I won't. They began to walk. He said, Shep and I will walk you home. I kind of thought you would. Maybe I could leave the house a little early tomorrow and could go over to your stop and wait there with you? Her hand found his. I kind of thought you might do that too. Tell me about your dreams. It's all kinds of stuff, only it's always about this place way far off. The gold towers, they're the color of your hair. D uh, don't get mad. I'm not mad. Me and Shep are trying to get there. Shep can talk. She squeezed his hand. I I've got this sword. It's a beautiful sword, and there's writing on the scabbard and writing on the blade. The writing on the scabbard is important. Really, really important. Are you making this up? He shook his head. If I was, it wouldn't be so scary. The writing on the blade is more important than the writing on the scabbard, but you have to read the scabbard, all of it, before you read the blade. It's all very hard to read because the writing's really old-fashioned. Shep can't read it at all, but I, I can a little. Last night, I was able to make out the first three words. I bet you couldn't remember them this morning. Sure I can, he spoke the words.
There was an old woman in a rocking chair on the porch of a house they were passing. She said, Hello, Sue. Hello, young man. Sue stared, then smiled. Hi, Aunt Dina. It seemed to him that there had been some kind of obstruction in Sue's throat. Would you and your young man like to come in for some iced tea? Uh, Next time, Aunt Dina. I've got to go home and do my homework. A middle-aged man with glasses came out of the house and spoke to Aunt Dina. She smiled at the man and said, I live here with you, sir. When she turned back to them, she said, That's a fine young man you've got there, Sue. Hold on to him. When they were a block past the house, he said, We're going across these hills, Sue. Shep and me are. We, we found a girl, a beautiful girl with long black hair. Something had her foot and it was pulling her into a hole and... I, I don't want to hear any more about your dreams, Sue said softly. Not right now. Let's, let's just walk for a little while. No talking. He nodded. This was Spruce Street, and there was a house there where the people had actually planted spruce trees between the street and the sidewalk. He did not know the people, but he had always felt sure he would like them if he ever met them, because of that. Three houses down, a sleek Mercedes sedan was parked at the curb. He had seen it before, although he did not know the owner. He stared at it as they passed, because it looked different, different in a warm and friendly way, as though it knew him and liked him. They had turned onto 23rd and walked another block before he figured it out. The Mercedes had always looked like something that would never be in his reach. Now it looked as if it was, as if it was a car he could own any time he decided he really wanted one. Sue said, I'm ready to talk now, Bill. Is that all right? He nodded. I'm ready to listen. There are two things I had to say. She paused, small white teeth gnawing at her lower lip. They are important, both of them, and I knew I ought to say them both, only I couldn't figure out which one I ought to say first. I think I have now. Have you ever had it like that? He nodded again. I usually get it wrong. I don't believe you. She smiled very suddenly, and it was as though the sun had burst from behind a cloud. Here's the first one. Do you know why high school is so important? I think you'd better tell me. It's not because it's where you learn history or home ec. It's not because it's where you go for college. It's because it's where some people, the people who aren't going to be left behind, decide what they want to do with their lives. He said, My brother decided he was going into the Navy. Yes, exactly. And I've decided. Have you? He shook his head. What I'm going to do is you, Bill. Her voice was low but intense. I'm going to stick with you. I think you're going to stick with me, too. I'll see you to it. But if you don't, I'm going to stick with you anyway. On the bus, I thought maybe you were going to try to ditch me. Remember that? I I would never ditch you, he said and meant it. Well, even if you do, I'll still be around. That's the first thing I wanted to say, and the thing I decided ought to come first. Now, I I said it, and I feel a lot better. So do I. He discovered that he was smiling. You know, I've got this problem, and it felt really, really important, but it isn't. Not anymore. She smiled. That's right. I was thinking how to tell my parents. That was the part that really had me worried. How how could I put it off onto them? I, I didn't think of it like that, but... That's what it was. Well, I'm not going to. Why should they worry when maybe they don't have to? If the school psychologist wants them to know, she can tell them herself. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Watcher, your son is crazy. Let's see how she likes it. Here's the other thing I have to tell you, Sue Summers said. Her voice was low, so low that he could barely hear her. That used to be Aunt Dina's house, back there. But Aunt Dina's dead. The sky had not changed. The sun that was always to their left was to his left still. 
The clouds raced on, with more after them and more after them, a marathon for clouds in which a hundred thousand were competing. It must never change here, he thought. Then he realized that all his dreams had taken little time here, no more than a few hours. The black-haired girl was still sitting on the ground, rubbing a slender white ankle that showed the livid mark of a clawed hand. Soil wet with blood still clung to the blade of his sword. He wiped it with dry grass, wishing for rags and a can of oil, reminding himself not to read the blade, not, not that he could have even if he wanted to. The girl looked up at him, and her eyes were large and dark, forest pools seen by moonlight. Not many men would have thought to do that, she said. Her voice was music, dark and low, and no other man would have dared. I'm just glad it worked, he said. What happened? For a moment she smiled. When she smiled, he felt he would have followed her to the end of the world. I didn't see the hole, that's all. The grass hit it. He nodded and sat near her, though not too near. Shep laid down at his feet. I wasn't looking. I should have been looking, but I wasn't. It's my own fault. I might as well say that right now, because it's the truth and I'll never be at peace until I admit it. I hate stupid, careless people, but I was stupid and careless. Do you try to tell the truth? M mostly, yes. I try constantly, but I lie and lie. It's my nature. She smiled again. I have to keep fighting it, and though I fight it all the time, I don't fight hard enough. He recalled something his biology teacher had told him. <laughs> DNA is destiny. You're a wizard, aren't you? It's more an accusation than a question. No, he told her. No, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. The smile teased her mouth, and it was a small mouth, and its perfect lips were very red. You've cast a spell on me, because I lie and I lie, but when I said you were a wizard, that was the truth. How old are you? Really? He could not remember. You wizards can make yourselves young again, I know that. But I don't care. You're my wizard, and you saved me, and I love you. Now, you look modest and say you love me too. He tried. She gave her ankle a final rub. I wish this mark would go away. I know it won't, but I wish it would. Rising, Shep licked it once, shook his head, and backed away. Your name is... Bill! She cocked her head. Are you making fun of me, Bill? No, he told her. I wouldn't make fun of you. Not ever. He meant it. My name is Biltis. She rose effortlessly, and he stood up hurriedly. She took his hands in hers. They'll want to know who my lover is, and I'll say Bill, and they'll laugh at me. Don't you feel sorry for me? Look, I've lost a slipper. Am I not richly deserving of your pity? Maybe it's still down there, he said, and knelt, and was about to thrust his hand into the hole. Don't! She seized his shoulders, pulling him back. I was only joking, you, you, you... Surprised, he turned to look at her. Her crimson lips were trembling, the great dark pools moist with tears. You mustn't. They're down there. You mustn't reach into holes or go into caves or... Or go down into wells or cisterns. Nothing like that ever again. They don't forget and they never forgive. Oh, Bill! She was in his arms. He clasped her trembling body, astonished to find it small and light. He kissed her cheek and neck, and their lips met. Come in and sit down, Billy. The woman behind the desk was dark, heavy, and middle-aged, with a warmth in her voice that made him want to like her. Are, are you really the psychologist? Uh-huh. You were expecting Dr. Gluck, I bet. She left at the end of the last term. I'm Dr. Grimes. Dr. Grimes smiled broadly. Why don't you sit right there? I don't bite. He did, and on the edge of a chair more comfortable than most school chairs. 
Do you like being Billy? Would you rather be William? Bill, he said. I'd like people to call me Bill. Is that all right? Sure, Bill. Bill, I'm going to start right off telling you something I ought to not tell you at all. I like having you here. I've been counseling for close to 20 years now. That's what I do. I'm a counselor. And it's almost always drugs or liquor. Or stealing. Here at this school, it's been drugs up to now. Nothing else. Let me tell you, Bill, a person gets awfully, awfully tired of drugs. And liquor. And stealing. So I'm real glad to see you. He waited. I got this notebook they took away from you. She opened the file folder on her desk and held it up. I read it. Probably you mind, but I had to or else I wouldn't have known what was being talked about, you see? I wouldn't have known what kind of things to say, either. Maybe you'd like it back? He nodded. She put it down in front of him. I'll tell you what I thought when I was reading it, about that dog and that little bird singing and all. I thought, why, this boy's got a real imagination. I told you about those drug people I got to talk to all the time, and the liquor people, too, and the stealing people, all of them. They haven't got it. You know why people steal, Bill? He shrugged. They, they want the stuff, I guess. You guess wrong. You ever see stuff you wanted in a store or anything? Sure. Uh-huh. You steal it? No. He shook his head. No, I didn't. They do. They take it. They take it because they can't imagine anything will happen. They do that maybe a hundred times and they get caught. Only next time, they can't imagine they're going to get caught this time. Why are you smiling? You, you reminded me of somebody. Somebody not real. On the TV? She was watching him narrowly. No. He sensed that he had been cornered and would be cornered again. It would be best, surely, to tell the truth to this friendly woman and try to get on her side. In a, in a dream I've been having, that's all. You like her. You wouldn't have smiled like that if you didn't. Is she pretty? He nodded. How about tall? Up to my chin. He touched it. That's in real high heels, I bet. No, ma'am. Barefoot. Uh-huh. Hasn't got no clothes. It was going to be complicated. He said slowly, She wasn't barefoot to start with. She had slippers. Like, really beautiful slippers with jewels on them. Unless she lost one, so she took the other one off. She has on a, a dress with a long skirt. It comes down nearly to her feet. It's gold and red and has jewels on it all over. He waved his hands, trying to indicate the patterns. It's, it's really, really pretty. Dr. Grimes was nodding. I bet she smells good, too. He was glad to confirm it. You're, you're right. She smells wonderful. You smell things in this dream? He hesitated. Well, I smelled her, and I smelled the wind sometimes, the freshness of it, or the ocean when it was blowing off the ocean. You ever kiss this girl? Biltis, he felt himself flushing. Her name's Biltis. We laughed about it. He waited for Dr. Grimes to speak, but she did not. I didn't really kiss her. She kissed me. Uh-huh. What happened after? She she whistled. I didn't think a girl could ever whistle that loud, but she did. She whistled, and this big bird came down. It looked like an eagle, kind of, but it was bigger and had a longer neck. It had a bridle and reins, you know? Like the, those long leather things you steer with? Dr. Grimes nodded. Uh-huh. I know what reins are. And she got on it and flew away. He closed his eyes, remembering. Only, it talked to me a little first. This big bird did. Yeah, it, I, it said I had better not hurt her. But I wouldn't. Then it flew away, and she waved. Waved to me. I see. That was real nice, wasn't it? He nodded. I won't ever forget it. Maybe you'll see her again. 
Dr. Grimes is watching him closely. I, I don't know. Do you want to, Bill? I don't know that either. She scared me a little. Dr. Grimes nodded. Sure. You ever see her when you weren't sleeping? I, I don't think so. Only you're not sure. No, he said. No, no, I haven't. All right. I want to talk about awake now, Bill. Funny things happen to everybody sometimes. I know funny things happen to me. Like, just last Wednesday, I saw a little boy that looked just like a certain little boy I'd gone to school with. Like he'd never grown up. And here he was, just the same. Anything like that ever happened to you? He shook his head. Oh, I bet. You know there was something. Tell me now. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> well, I had walked over to somebody's house, and I was coming back, Shep and me. Shep, he nodded. Can I ask why you walked over to this house, Bill? Well, it, it seemed like I ought to. She, she got off, off my stop, off, off the bus. Uh-huh. So I had walked over to her house. We talked, you know? Dr. Grimes chuckled. She likes you, Bill. If she didn't like you, what's she getting off at your stop for? And you like her. If you didn't, what are you walking her home for? Yeah, I, I guess. Well, I was coming back home, and Sue's, the, this girl's Aunt Dina, came out of her, her house and stopped me. She's an old lady, and she's not really this one girl's aunt. She was a friend of this girl's grandmother's. I got it. What'd she say, Bill? She said she needed a big, big favor. She said she owed me already, but she needed another favor, a big one. Shep didn't like her. Dr. Grimes leaned forward, her face serious. Did she want you to do something bad, Bill? I, I don't think so. She, she just said this girl's family probably had some pictures of her when she was young, of Aunt Dina. Now, she'd like to have them, and would I see if I could get them for her? As many as I could. So I said, all right, but Shep says, uh, I mean, he doesn't like her. I, I don't think he likes me getting mixed up with her. Shep's your dog? No, no, ma'am. But he's a dog. Does he really talk, Bill? It was easier because he had just said it. No, ma'am. You gonna try to get her the pictures? Yes, ma'am. I, I asked this girl, and she said she'd look and bring them to school today, any she found. If she's got any, I'll take them over after school. That's not a bad thing you're doing, trying to help an old woman like that. No, ma'am, he said. But I thought it was pretty weird. Why didn't she just phone Sue's mom? When they got off the bus that afternoon, he dropped his books at his house and put on Sue's backpack for the walk over to hers. The pictures, faded black and white snapshots, were in a white envelope in the pocket of his shirt under his sweater. There were more leaves on the sidewalk today. The maples had turned to scarlet and gold, and a bush in somebody's yard to a deep, rich crimson. In my dream, he said, where I've got the sword? She looked at him sidelong. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful I can hardly stand it sometimes. But it's just brown hills and purple mountains way far off and the blue sky with the white clouds moving fast across it. What makes it so pretty is the way I feel about it. I see everything, and I see how great it is. The bird with this girl riding him, and her hair and her scarf blowing out behind her. She waved like this, and she had a golden bracelet on her wrist. The sun hit it, and it was the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. I don't think I like her, Sue said. Aunt Dina? This girl in your dream. Oh... Yeah, I'm not sure I do either, but what I started to say was that I'm getting to see things here the same way as there. That's really, really beautiful, like I said, but it's beautiful here too. More beautiful than there, really. Biltis is beautiful, she really is, and the dress is really pretty, and her jewelry didn't just cost a lot, it's, it's like looking at stars. But you're more beautiful than Biltis is. 
Quickly, Sue turned again to look at him. If your dress was as pretty as hers and you had jewelry as nice as hers is, you'd be the homecoming queen and you'd be a maid of honor. You know what I mean? Sue took his hand and that was answer enough. So I've been thinking, pretty soon I might be able to do that. Give you a dress so beautiful people would just stop and stare. And, and jewelry! Shep said, good! Though Sue seemed not to hear him. I've been thinking about other stuff too. Have you, Bill? Yeah, lots of things. He took the white envelope from his pocket. Like, I'd like to show her to you. Show Biltis if I could. If, if, if I was good in art the way you are, maybe I could draw her. I, I'm not, but I can show you pretty close, just the same. He took out a photograph. Like this. The sharp chin and the little mouth. The big eyes especially. That's Aunt Dina, she told him. Aunt Dina when she was about 20. I know, he said. Anyway, she can't really be dead, can she? Chef growled softly, deep in his throat. I figured it out, Sue continued, while I was looking for these pictures. See, my mother didn't want me going over there, so she told me Aunt Dina was dead, so I wouldn't. We went to some funeral, but it was some other old lady's, and when we got home, she told me it was Aunt Dina. I think I was in kindergarten then. Doesn't that make sense, Bill? Sure, he said. I mean, you said she came out and stopped you on the street. Ghosts don't do that. I, I guess not. She didn't want to talk to me because she knew my mother was mad and she couldn't phone the house. He said, right, but maybe you could get them for her. See, that's the only way everything fits. He said, we still got to take her the pictures. Sue nodded. Yes, we do. That's why I brought them. I, I don't know what my mother was so mad about and it was a long time ago anyway. You ought to forgive people after a while, unless it's something really bad. Dogs are good for that. We ought to learn from them. She leaned down to pet Shep. What about that big social studies test tomorrow? Have you been studying? Yeah, he said. Only I missed class today. I had to talk to the shrink. It wasn't bad. We just reviewed Europe. Would you like me to fill you in a little when we get to my house? I mean, I'll just tell my mother you weren't in class today, so I'm going to tell you what we talked about. Sure, he said, smiling. I've been hoping I could get you to do that. Boy, am I lucky. Okay. Suppose you got to go to Paris. Give me three or four things you'd like to see there. He was silent for a moment, concentrating. The big art museum. The Louvre. Mrs. Formier will give you a lot better grade if you use the French name. She teaches French, too. I know, he said. They had reached the house. Still holding the snapshots Sue had brought to school, he climbed four steps to the porch and rang the bell. Maybe she won't be home, Sue said from the top of the steps. You could just leave them in the mailbox, Bill. I'm going out for football, he looked back at her, grinning. Football players don't just leave them in the mailbox. He rang again, hearing heavy metal footsteps from inside the house. Sue joined him on the porch. Her deliciously rounded chin was up, but she took his left arm and held it tightly. A rumpled man opened the door and asked what they wanted. My, my mother had these... Sue's voice faded away. Tell him, Bill. He nodded and held them out. There's an old lady living with you. I think her name's Dina? The rumpled man shook his head. There's no old lady living here, son. Forget it. His face was hard and a trifle stupid, the face of a man whom life had defeated, who could not understand why he had been defeated so easily. Bill said... But you know who I mean. I promised her I'd bring these pictures if I could, and... Do you know her? You know her name, so you've got to. You tell her to get out of my house and quit bothering me and my family. 
Sue's grip tightened. Bill, it's her house, he told the rumpled man, or any house she thinks it is. She thought it was hers probably a, a long time before you were born, mister. I'll tell her what you said if I ever see her again, but I'm going to give you some advice right now. Take these pictures and don't tear them up or anything. Leave them someplace where they'll be easy for her to find, on the mantle or someplace like that. Let go of my arm for a minute, Sue. He turned over the white envelope, took a pencil from his pocket, wrote Dina slash Biltis on the front, and handed the envelope to the rumpled man in the doorway. That might help. I don't know, but it might. I'd do that if I were you. After supper that evening, Ray Watcher asked his son why he was studying so hard, saying, You've been at those books for a couple hours now. Is there anything I can help you with? Just social studies. He closed the book and looked up. But I'm going out for football. You are? Yeah, it, it's sort of late, almost too late, but I just decided today. You've got to keep your grades up or they won't let you play. Ray Watcher tried to conceal the pride he felt. He was a simple man, but not an unintelligent one. They might not let you play a lot anyway, Bill. You're not a junior, you know. Don't get your hopes too high. Well, this is the first big test in social studies, and I'm not too hot in that. Two words from the scabbard popped into his mind, and he pronounced them almost automatically. What the hell was that? Ray Watcher took off his glasses as if their lenses could somehow block hearing. What language do you mean? Bill tilted his chair back, yawned, and stretched. No language of this world, sir, nor do I know its proper name. I suppose it's closer to Chaladian than anything else we have here. You're a funny kid, Bill. He smiled. Only too often, sir. I fall over my own feet, I know. When his father had gone, he murmured to himself, I think it must mean, let me be numbered among the learned. He and his dog tramped over the plain, mile upon mile. There seemed to be no convenient way for him to wear the sword. He had tried thrusting its scabbard through his belt, but it slipped and tripped him, and proved to be much less convenient than carrying it, and the long blade it held, over his shoulder. Dark, Shep said. Pretty dark, yes. Do you mean that night is coming? Yep. We ought to have a tent or something, he searched his pockets. I don't even have anything we could use to start a fire, and there's nothing out here to burn except grass. Shep said nothing. This is a little like a Jack London story, but I don't like that story, and I have no intention of repeating it. Are you getting tired? Nope. Then we should keep walking, for a while at least. Why did she blow her kiss at me, Shep? Who was she anyway? Shep said nothing. That's right, you never saw her. I don't mean Biltis. I mean the woman on the rock by the sea. She had an apple, a gold one. She wanted to bite it, but you can't bite gold. Nope. Nope, it's a soft metal, but not, not soft enough to bite except for very thin gold leaf. They used to coat costly pills with that. Spring. This weather? Perhaps you're right, but it seems like fall to me. Very early spring, possibly. Water. I smell it. Smells strong. He smiled. Then it's probably not good to drink. Good water. If you say so. I'm learned now, or I think I may be, but being learned isn't the same as being wise. I'm, I'm, I'm wise enough to know that, anyway. Wise enough to trust a dog's judgment of what he smells. The wolf wind that had driven the clouds before it like terrified sheep had come to earth. It ruffled his hair and raced beneath his shirt. He shivered, conscious for the first time of both his thirst and cold. Talking of water brings us back to the woman on the coast, he told Shep to distract himself from his discomfort. Let's assume she's someone famous, or anyway, someone known. A woman as lovely as she is and as mysterious as she is could hardly stay unknown for long. If we list what we know about her, we may find a clue to her identity. Shep glanced up at him. 
If you say so, chief. Prima. He shivered again and strove to walk a trifle faster. She was on a rock in the sea. I'm tempted to say by the sea, but it was actually in the sea, although not very far out. Okay, Shep said. Secunda. She was nude. Both these seemed to indicate that she had come up out of the sea. People on land wear clothing to keep off the sun and to keep warm. At that moment, he dearly wished his own would keep him warmer. Perhaps in the sea, people have no need to keep off the sun and cannot be worn by ordinary clothing. Tertia. She was strikingly beautiful. And Quarta. She held the golden apple I have already mentioned. That covers it, I think. Shep made a small noise that might or might not have been of assent. You're quite right. There is more. Quinta. She had extraordinary hair. It seemed black and blonde together. Not black in places and blonde in others, but both at once. Sexta. A suggestive ordinal, Shep. Wishing to give a blessing or something of the kind, she kissed. Did she, chief? Yes. Yes, indeed, she did. And if it was not her kiss that made me aware of the speech of animals, what did? They walked on in silence for a time. At length, he said, Do you know of any famous female who would appear to fit our description of her? It seems to me we do. We call her Venus, or Aphrodite, or even Ishtar. She was born of the sea. Paris awarded her the golden prize called the Apple of Discord. She is the goddess of love, and we cannot understand any animal until we love it. Furthermore, over there! Shep raced away. The spring, when they found it, was wide and deep, and its water was clearer than any diamond. Shep drank, and Bill drank too, and marveled by the sun's dying light to see the cold crystalline water welling from deep in the earth. It raced away as a noisy brook, narrow, but by no stretch of the word feeble. Neither am I, he told Shep. The water made me feel much stronger. I suppose I was becoming weak from thirst, and perhaps from hunger, too. He drank again, and the strength he knew was strength he had never known before. From his notebook. Dr. Grimes has returned this to me. She wants me to record my dreams as I did earlier, and to show it to her at our next session. I will comply. Last night, Shep steered me to a spring of strength. We drank from it. I felt much stronger and tested my strength by throwing stones, some so large I was astonished to find I could lift them. Shep ran as fast as my stones flew, which I think remarkable. This morning he ran alongside our bus, following Sue and me to school. I believe he is out on the athletic field. When I grew bored, we sat beside the spring, I laboring to puzzle out the inscriptions on the scabbard by the dying light. The days must be longer there, or perhaps it is only that we move faster. I read each group of symbols again and again, if it can be called reading. Slowly, terribly slowly, the meanings of a few words creep into my mind. There are some I could pronounce if I dared, though I have no notion or little of what they mean. There are others I understand, or believe I may understand somewhat, although I have little or no idea of their pronunciation. It is a slow process, and one that may never bear fruit. And yet, these spells are only a distraction, however hermetic they may be. What has happened to me? That is the question. Why do I find myself in this barren land each night? What land is it in which thaumaturgic springs rise from barren ground? I want you to stay for a minute or two after the bell, Billy. Will you do that? His heart sank, but he nodded. Yes, Mrs. Formier. The bell rang even as he spoke. As the rest of the class trooped out, she smiled and motioned for him to join her at the desk. That essay of yours on the Louvre! I would have been amazed to see it from an undergraduate at Yale or Princeton, and delighted to receive it from a grad student. To get it here, there are simply no words. I'm overjoyed, flabbergasted. Was it really a lodge in the Dark Ages? A place where they hunted wolves? Oui, madame, he said. 
Seeing her expression, he reverted to English and remained there. I shouldn't let you sign up this late, the coach told him. I wouldn't if we weren't short. What position do you play? Whatever positions or positions you want me to play, sir. The coach grunted. Damn right. What do you think you might be good? Nowhere, probably, but I'll try. Okay, we'll try you online. I want you to get down like this, see? One hand on the ground. That's good. When I count three, come straight at me as hard as you can. Don't use your hands, but try to go through me. Try to knock me over. One, two, three! It was as though the coach were not in truth a man at all, but a sort of inflated figure, a man-shaped balloon to be shouldered aside. Sue Summer was sitting in the living room, chatting with his mother when he came home. I knew you'd be late because of football practice, she said, but I didn't want to miss our walk. Is that all right? He nodded, speechless. His mother said, You're going to have supper at Sue's house, Billy. She phoned home, and then I talked with Mrs. Sumner myself. She'll be very glad to have you. She's looking forward to getting to know you. Pot roast, are you hungry? He nodded again, suddenly aware that he was ravenous. Your father's so proud of you. What position will you play? I want to be able to tell him when he gets home. Linebacker. Well, try to catch a lot of passes. Outside, they petted Shep. Your mom has no idea what a linebacker does, Bill. He grinned. Yes, I know. Do you want me to tell her? You know, just girl to girl when I get a chance? He looked down at Shep, who said quite distinctly, Yep. Yes, I do. She may actually be interested now that I'm playing. Do you think they'll really let you play? I know a lot of guys just scrimmage with the team for the first year. It was a good question, and he considered it for a block or more. Yes, he said. I'm going to have a tough time of it because I'm so new. Young men who have been on the team for what they consider a long while are not going to like my playing, and they'll like it even less if I start. But I believe I will play, and even that I'll start. Don't count on starting, said Sue. I wouldn't want you to be disappointed. Thank you. What if the rose streak of morning pale and depart in a passion of tears? Once to have hoped is no matter for scorning. Love once, even love's disappointment endears. A minute's success pays the failure of years. Why, Bill, that's beautiful! He nodded. It should be. It's Robert Browning. Can I tell you what I've been thinking? I wish you would. I was thinking that football might just be a letdown. For me, for my parents, and for you. But it wouldn't matter, because you were here waiting for me when I got home from practice. What difference could football make after that? You were here, and it meant I had won. Practice and games are just bother. Busyness. Oh, Bill. She took his hand. So, after that, I thought, what if you hadn't been here? And it hit me. It hit me very hard. That millions of other men will come home and can't even hope that you might be there, waiting, the way you are for me. That even if you hadn't been here, I would be privileged like nobody else on earth. Because I could hope really hope, not deluding myself, that you might be, that love's disappointments are better than success and other things. He cleared his throat. I realize I haven't expressed myself very well, but that's how my mind was running, and naturally I thought of Browning then, as anybody would. Can I tell you what I'm thinking now? He nodded. Of course. I'm thinking what a jerk I was. I rode that bus for three solid weeks before I realized what was on it with me. That my whole future was sitting across the aisle or three seats back. What a jerk! He sighed and could find no more woods. Look, sharp! Shep whined. 
They were approaching the house at which he had left the snapshots when a breathtaking brunette threw open its door. She was carrying a blue and silver jacket, and she held it up for their inspection before running across the porch and down the steps to meet them. Remember me? He nodded. Certainly. Smiling, she held out her hand to Sue. I'm Dina. Dina Biltis. I just want to give Bill this. It's cold, and he'll need it. She turned to him, holding the jacket open. Here, take off that backpack and put your arm in. He did. It's too big for him, Sue said. And besides, Bill's bigger than you know. Do you like it, Bill? Yes, he said. Very much. It was loose, but not excessively so. He lifted his arms to admire the sleeves. Blue leather with silver slashes. Without warning, Dina kissed him. At the next moment, she was fleeing back up the steps and into the house. He got out a handkerchief and wiped his mouth thoughtfully. Wow, Shep barked. Wow, chief. Sue sighed. I suppose I'm supposed to fly into a jealous rage, I think. Isn't that how it's supposed to go? He was snapping the jacket closed. I have no idea. I think it is. Are you going to keep the jacket? For the time being, anyway. Suppose I asked you to give it back. He considered. I'd want to know why. If you had a good reason, I'd do it. Suppose I didn't have any reason at all. Shouldering her backpack again, he began to walk. I wouldn't do it. You told me what you had been thinking a minute ago. Can I tell you what I'm thinking now? For an instant, her eyes found his face, although she did not turn her head. She nodded without speaking. I've already got a mother. She's a good mother, and I love her. I need you, not another mother. If I say one more thing, will you get mad? Nope, Shep told her. That's a letter jacket. You're not supposed to wear one unless you're lettered. There's no letter on it. Guys who've lettered are going to take it away just the same, Bill. He grinned. Then you'll have one. What's wrong with that? Do you remember Grandma's friend Dina? Sue asked her mom of her pot roast. Oh my goodness. Yes, indeed. Auntie Dina. I haven't thought about her in years and years. Chick said. Was she the one that collected Shaw's? He used to talk about her, Mom. Chick was Sue's brother. Sue's mother nodded. That's right. I don't believe you ever met her, though. You will, Sue told her brother. She's back. Sue's mother picked up the green beans. Won't you have some more, Bill? He thanked her and took a second helping. Sue said, You probably didn't notice how old-fashioned her clothes were, Bill. That dark dress and those black stockings? Jet beads. They didn't really shout it, but they were the kind of clothes people wore, I don't know, a long time ago. He chewed and swallowed and sipped milk. No one spoke, and at last he said, They were in one of the pictures. She will have new ones next time, I think. Can she do that? He shrugged. My jacket wasn't in those pictures. Take it off! Seth Tompkins demanded, and Doug Douglas grabbed him from behind. Sure, he said. If you want it, I'll let you have it. Doug relaxed somewhat. Bill slipped out of the jacket, kicked Doug, and hit the back of Doug's neck when Doug doubled up. Seth's right knocked him off balance, and Seth's left caught him under the cheekbone. He hit Seth in the pit of the stomach, knocking him sprawling. Martha Novick had stopped to watch. People on television talk a lot when they fight. He picked up his leather jacket and dusted it off with his hand. I don't think it's ever really like that. You're too busy. I guess I ought to tell Mr. Hoff, Martha said. Only I'm not going to. He thanked her. Did you hurt them bad, Bill? I don't think so, he told her. They'll get up when I'm gone. 
Dr. Grimes closed the notebook and smiled at him. This is interesting stuff, Bill. Did you really dream it? He nodded. Armor that looked like your school jacket? Somewhat like it, he said. Not exactly. Do you care? Dr. Grimes nodded. All right, my school jacket's blue and silver. You must have seen them. She nodded again. This is a short black leather coat. It's not blue or silver at all. The leather isn't, I mean. But it has steel rings sewn on it and steel plates across the chest. Some of the steel plates and rings have been blued. Heat blued, I suppose. Do you know how they blew steel? I couldn't do it, Dr. Grimes said. But I've seen it. Sure, Bill. The rest have been polished bright. They'll rust, I'm sure, unless I keep them shined and oiled. So will the blue ones. But I'm going to take the best care of them that I can. I'll put a little can of oil and a rag in my jacket pockets tonight before I go to bed. She cocked her head. Will that work? I don't know. I believe it may. Uh-huh. You tell me if it does. You been fighting? He smiled. You get around, don't you? You going to law school when you get out of here? Why do you ask? Because you answer a question with a question when you don't want to talk. That's a lawyer trick, and lawyers make real good money if they're good. I don't get around at all, Bill. I just sit in my office talking and writing down and answering the phone. But people come and tell me stuff. Got a little bruise on that sweet face, too. You really kicked that one, boy? He nodded. Are you going to report me? Uh-uh. Maybe somebody will. I don't know, Bill. But not me. I kicked him, and they would have kicked me if they got him the chance. We weren't boxing. We were fighting. How can you play fair when you're not playing? You're on the football team now. He nodded. Going to start against Pershing. That's what I heard. The the coach hasn't said that to me. I can play halfback and linebacker, or, or at least he says I can, and I've been practicing those positions. I just hope I get in the game. Uh-huh. She smiled. I was married to a football player one time. Detroit Lions. I used to go to all the games back then, and I still watch a lot. On the TV, you know. You know what they tell me about you, Bill? He shook his head. They say you always catch a pass. Two men covering you, three, it doesn't matter. You always catch it. I've been lucky. Uh-huh. Ms. Formier, she says you're a genius. You've been lucky there too, I guess. I don't think so. Dr. Grimes sat in silence for half a minute regarding him. At last, she said, If a boy's too smart, the other boys don't like that, do they? Maybe he was just lucky, but if he'd been luckier, he would have missed a question. Maybe two. I ever tell you I like you? He nodded. I do, Bill. First time I talked to you, you seemed like such a nice kid, and you got a good imagination. Now you seem like a nice man with a real good education and a kid's face. That first one was interesting. This one here? This is real interesting. You're wrong, he said. I get up in the morning, and I want to come to work. That's because of you. How am I wrong, Bill? Tell me. He rose, sensing that the period was nearly over. You think I've grown up, somehow, inside. I haven't. I know a lot more than I did, because I've been trying to decipher the runes on the scabbard. But I'm still Bill Watcher, and I'm still young, inside. When the world is young, lad, and all the trees are green, and every goose a swan, lad, and every lass a queen, then hay for boot and horse, lad, and round the world away. Young blood must have its course, lad, and every dog his day. Dr. Grimes only watched him with thoughtful eyes, so when a second and two had ticked past, he turned and went out into the hall. She said nothing to stop him, and he was ten paces from her door when the bell rang. Sue and a tall, smiling man in a checkered sport coat were waiting for him when he left the locker room after the game. This is Mr. Archer, Sue said. He's going to take us for Perry's for a bite, if that's all right with you, Bill. Is it? He smiled. Do you want me to go? 
Not if you don't. Then I do, he said, and her hand slipped into his. Mr. Archer's car was a red Park Avenue Ultra with tinted windows. You two sit in back, he told them. It'll take 20 minutes or so, and I can't talk worth a damn when I'm driving. Mr. Archer got in and tilted the rearview mirror up, and Bill opened the door for Sue and got in himself on the other side. By the time they had left Veterans Avenue behind, and with it the last traffic of the game, his hand had slid beneath her sweater and under the waistband of her skirt. She was prim and ladylike when Archer opened the door of the car for her, but she left as soon as Perry's head waiter had seated them to repair her makeup in the restroom. Beautiful girl, Archer said, appreciatively. You know her long, Bill? Yes and no. Although he had held the restaurant's door for them both like a gentleman, and had pulled out Sue's chair for her, beating the head waiter to it by one-tenth of one second, his mind was still whirling. We rode the same bus last year, and she was in my homeroom in some of my classes. It was the fourth week of school this year before we got to be close friends. He cleared his throat. September 22nd. Archer smiled. You remember the exact day? Certainly. You didn't play last year, did you? I don't think freshmen are eligible. He shook his head, trying to recall his freshman year. Things had been so different then. So very, very different. So very much worse. No, he said. You're correct, they aren't, and I wouldn't have gone out anyway. She couldn't have known you'd be a star. She didn't even know I'd go out. That day, that day we really noticed each other, I hadn't decided to do it. Or even thought about it, really. Sue didn't tell you what I'd do. Archer took a card folder from a pocket of his sport coat, fished out a card, and laid it on the table between them. I'm an assistant coach, just like that card says. I coach offense, and I go to high school games whenever I get the chance, Bill, hoping to spot some real talent. Mostly I don't. In that case, he said, slowly, it was very nice of you to take us out like this. A waiter came. Mr. Archer ordered a John Collins and two Diet Cokes. There are 50 players on each team early in the season, Mr. Archer said. So 100 altogether. Why am I being so nice to you? I suppose because my parents weren't there? I ought to explain that. They wanted to come, but I begged them not to. I was afraid I wouldn't get to play at all, and that I'd, or if I did, that I'd play badly. Returning, Sue said, You didn't, Bill. You made the Panthers look like monkeys out there. Mr. Archer said, The score was 20-zip! Who scored all those touchdowns? I, I was lucky, that's all. Five times I saw you catch passes that ought to have been incompletions. Three times I saw you catch passes that should have been interceptions. A waitress brought their drinks. You know the three times rule, Bill? Once an accident. Twice, that's a dink. Three times, that's enemy action. You were the... What school was that, Bill? Who were you playing? Pershing. She had grabbed his leg under the table and was squeezing hard, probably as hard as she could, but he had no idea why. You were Pershing's enemy, Mr. Archer said. An enemy they couldn't handle. You weren't watching their coach, but I was. I used to coach high school myself. He was chewing nails and spitting them at his players. Bill, Sue whispered, for just a minute, I have to talk to you. So do I, Archer told her. I need to tell him about some of the scholarships we've got, but all my talking will take quite a while, and maybe you won't. I'll go wash my hands. Over his shoulder, he added, If you want nachos or anything, just order. Steaks, whatever. On me. Sue leaned closer, her voice almost inaudible. Our waitress. Did you look at her, Bill? He shook his head. It's Dina. Back in the Park Avenue Ultra, Mr. Archer asked where they wanted to go. Sue said, Where Edison and Cottonwood cross. It's a white house, two stories with a big porch. Okay, Bill? We ought to take you home first. 
No way. You won't tell your folks a thing. Take us to Bill's house, Mr. Archer, where I said. His mom and dad shouldn't find out he's a hero from the paper. Sue, Archer said. You're afraid I'll go in and buttonhole your parents. You want some time to think it over for yourself. Am I right, Bill? He was not, but Bill said he was. I understand, and I won't do it. Listen, Bill, I want to tell you something, and I want you to remember it. I was an all-city quarterback once, back before you were born. Where you are now, I've been there too. I know what it's like. You keep my card. I'll talk to you again in a few days. Your folks are nice, Sue said as he walked her home. They let me tell them all that stuff before they told us they've been listening on the radio. Did you notice? He nodded. College games get on TV. States always do around here because there are so many grads. Mr. Archer didn't say that, so I'll say it now. Just something to think about, Bill. I am. Sue glanced at him, then away. Here's something else. My mom is a very good mother, but she works really hard. She has to be at work at seven, and when she gets home, she has to clean and cook. I help as much as I can, and so does Chick, but she does most of it. This time it was Shep who said, Sure. Sue did not seem to notice. So, she wouldn't have listened to the game, Bill. I'm sorry, but she won't. I mean, I'll tell her tomorrow, but she won't have heard about it on the radio. He said, That's, that's good. In fact, she'll be in bed and sleep by the time we get there. That's something else to think about, Bill. Bill thought. The hills were behind them, the plain ahead of them, flat and featureless, an empty expanse of dry brown grass across which a chill wind moaned. He had given the leather coat with its still rings to Sue. Its shoulders were too big for her and its sleeves too long. But that was good, and the leather kept out the wind. Where are we going? she said. He pointed. See those mountains? There's a city, a golden city, on the other side. We're going there. What for? Because it's the only place to go. You can go there, or you can die here. That's all the choices we have. He paused, considering. I can't make you go there. I'd have to hit you or something, and tie you up while I slept, and I, I won't do that. Maybe there's something over that way, or over there. I don't know. And if you want to look, I'll go with you, but... I'm going where you're going, Bill. Sue's voice was firm. I've already told you that. Only, I've got a lot of questions. I haven't got any answers, he said. There was a wild cry overhead, as lonely and inhuman as the keening of a hawk. They looked up and saw the great bird that had uttered it, sailing through the ragged clouds, and watched it circle and descend. That's Biltis, he said. Maybe she'll help us. She gave Sue a wand with which she can start fires, he wrote in his notebook the next day, and she said we would come to a river and that there would be a cave in the bank which we were not to enter on any account. Sue clasped my arm and said, he belongs to me, but Biltis only laughed and said I belong to both of them, and that I had from the beginning. Come on in, Bill, and shut the door. Dr. Grimes waved toward a chair. This here is Dr. Hayes. Dr. Hayes was my teacher a long time ago. Over there's Miss Biltis from the school board. I told them I wanted to get Dr. Hayes to consult, and they said okay, but they had to have somebody here to see what was going on. So, that's Miss Biltis. Dina said, Bill and I have met already. Hi, Bill. He said hi in return. Dr. Hayes asked, Does he always bring the dog, Tracy? Dr. Grimes shook her head. He talks about it, but I never did see it before. Is that Shep, Bill? He nodded. Dina said, it's contrary to our regulations to have a dog in the building or on school property, unless it's a guide dog for the blind. In that case, the board's willing to make an exception. That's good, Dr. Grimes said. Dr. Hayes shaped a steeple from his fingers. Why did you bring your dog today, Bill? 
He's not really my dog, Bill said. He's my lawyer. Dr. Grimes looked surprised. Dina laughed. She had a pretty laugh, and it made him feel better to hear it. Dr. Hayes' expression did not change in the least. I'm not sure I understand. Perhaps you'd better explain. I don't mean he's a real lawyer. He hasn't passed the bar. But I felt I needed someone to advise me, and I know Shep's smart, and he's on my side. I'm on your side too, Bill, Dr. Grimes said. So am I, Bill. I thought you knew that. Dina grinned. It was an attractive grin and full of mischief. We of the board are always on the side of the students. But you're over there, Bill gestured, and Shep and I are over here. I can fix that. Dina got up and moved her chair so that she sat on his left and Shep on his right. Dr. Hayes nodded to her. Is there a statement you wish to make on behalf of the school board before I begin? Dina shook her head. I'll reserve it. I would prefer that you not interrupt. Quite frankly, your presence poses a threat to the exploratory examination I wish to undertake. Interruptions may render it futile. What about the dog? Dina smiled. Shep said, nope. If the dog proves to be an impediment, we'll dismiss it, although I doubt that will be necessary. Bill said, I'm missing social studies. Dr. Hayes nodded again. We're aware of it, and we've discussed it with your teacher. She says you have already earned an A and that you know much more of the subject than her course is designed to teach her students. What day of the week is this, Bill? Monday? Correct. And the date? October 5th. Also correct. We are in a building of some sort. Do you know what that building is? Kennedy Consolidated. And why are you here, Bill? He stroked Shep's head, at which Shep said, Dunno. Bill? Dr. Hayes sounded polite, but wary. I was thinking, sir, I could offer three or four explanations, but I don't have much confidence in any of them. The truth is that I don't know. Why am I? In order that you can provide these explanations, for one thing. Will you? Dr. Grimes said, You see, Bill, what you say to us is going to be a lot more help than anything we could say to you. You've been sitting in a class with the teacher day after day. I know. This is kind of like that, only you're the teacher now, and me and Miss Biltus and Dr. Hayes, we're the ones you're teaching. Shep said, Go ahead, Chief. All right. He paused to collect his thoughts. I've been writing down my dreams in study hall. You told me to do that, but I was doing it before you told me, and Mrs. Durkin read my notebook over my shoulder and decided that I was psychotic. She likes me, but she still thinks I'm psychotic. She feels sorry for me. Dr. Hayes said, We all do, Bill. Not me, Dr. Grimes said. Bill can take care of himself. I only wish he'd help me understand him more, because I don't. I don't indeed. Dina grinned again. Me neither. I feel sorry for... The telephone rang. Dr. Grimes picked it up and said, Counseling. Oh, hello, Sue. You, you know I never have met you, but I heard a sight about you from this nice Bill Watcher. He thinks you got angel wings, you know that? Why no? Now don't you worry. I got my appointment book right here. Maybe two o'clock tomorrow? That's good. Now don't you worry none about Shep. I got him right here. I've been talking to him my own self. Dr. Grimes laughed. Of course, he hasn't said much back, Sue. Maybe he will. What's he say to you? That's good. That Shep's a good, sensible dog, Sue. Don't you worry. You come see me tomorrow. Dr. Grimes' smile faded as she hung up. Shep's been talking to Sue, too, Dr. Hayes. Sue's Bill's girlfriend. Dina said, One of them. He didn't say nothing bad. I only wanted to know where Bill was, so she told him and he went off. She'd like to see me, but the door was closed, just a minute ago, I guess, so she called from the phone in the cafeteria. Yes, Bill, you want to say something? He nodded. 
I've been pondering the speech of animals. It's not the kiss that flew to me suddenly that made animals talk. It's the kiss that let me understand what they were saying. Love is at the root of it. The more you love anyone or anything, the better you understand it. She kissed me, and I kissed Sue, and that may be the reason Sue understands Shep now. I've got a cat I call Cat-Cat, Dr. Grimes said. I don't understand Cat-Cat very good, but that Cat-Cat understands me backward and forward, too. She likes me more than I like her. That what you're saying? Shep said. Yep. Dina said. I'm going to interrupt here. Bill promised us several explanations and has delivered only one, that the Durkin woman thinks he's psychotic. I would like to hear the others. Also, I want to say that I understand Shep perfectly. Not that he's said much, but that what he said has been in plain doggish, which is quite different from dog girl. If the student who called understands him too, she's no crazier than I am. Dr. Hayes and Dr. Grimes stared at her. Bill's never kissed me. Is that supposed to make a difference? I've kissed him, though. Dr. Hayes leaned toward Dr. Grimes. I seem to be losing control of the situation, Tacey. Uh, my apologies. I guess you see now why I wanted you. Nodding, he turned to Dina. I take it you're a friend of Bill's family, Ms. Biltis. Why, no. I don't know Bill's parents at all. Bill cleared his throat. She wants another explanation, and one just occurred to me. Would anyone like to hear it? Dina said, I would, Bill. And Dr. Grimes nodded. I don't credit this one either, Bill said. I should make that clear. But I find it interesting. He held up his notebook. Before I met Biltis, I met a dwarf on horseback. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that I was overtaken by him. It's all in here. He paused, inviting them to read his notebook if they cared to. No one spoke. He gave me a sword. I want to call it an enchanted sword, and perhaps it is. Certainly the spells on the scabbard are magical, and doubtless those engraved on the blade are magical as well. I can read the spells on the scabbard somewhat. I read them badly and quite slowly, but eventually I can puzzle them out. Sue and Shep cannot read them at all. Dr. Hayes said, Do you feel that these enchantments explain your presence, perhaps, Bill? That the casting of a spell has compelled you to come? He shook his head. Not exactly. First of all, they are spells, not enchantments. That is to say, they are words of magical import. One merely speaks them, and no chanting is required, although I would think that many chants are required for the sword that was to bear so much magic. Dina giggled. Of course, I've asked myself many times why such a sword should be given to me. Dr. Grimes said, It was your dream, Bill. You don't think that's reason aplenty? That's like saying all islands are inhabited because all the islands from which we've received reports are. He shrugged. I've had many dreams in which I wasn't given an enchanted sword, or a sword of any kind, if... Dr. Hayes interrupted him. Do you feel a connection between this sword and your penis, Bill? He laughed, and so did Dina. Dr. Grimes said, What do you think a sword might be connected to, Bill, besides the dwarf? Coming from a dwarf, I know why Dr. Hayes said what he did, and lots of people like to think that. How do you think? What does this sword that got in your dream make you think about? Biltis, he said, and as he spoke, Dina slipped her hand into his. Is that the girl in your dream that rides that bird? I told Dr. Hayes about her, and maybe he'd like to read about her, too, by and by. Dr. Hayes said, Perhaps I would, Tacey, perhaps I would. I think so. Why does this sword make you think about her, Bill? He looked from Dr. Grimes to Dina and back again. I think that Biltis might be a princess or a queen, something of that kind in any case, a, a woman with a lot of power. I told you about the fire wand, Dr. Grimes nodded. The wand proves that she has magical possessions and can afford to give them away almost casually. When Sue and Shep and I went into the cave, she told us not to, but we went anyway because Sue wanted to get out of the wind. We were attacked, and Sue's wand was a, at least as important as my sword and Shep's teeth in beating our attackers back and getting the three of us out of there alive. Dr. Grimes nodded again, encouragingly. It was a good thing you got it, Bill. 
it was a good thing Sue did, or we probably would have been killed. And Biltis gave it to her. Sue is jealous of Biltis, but I don't think Biltis is jealous of Sue. Dina said, neither do I. Sue wants to keep me, he continued, but Biltis feels she already has me, and I think she may be right. What, when I made this thing that she had by the foot release her, she told me very seriously that I must be aware of underground places. I didn't trust her warning then, not wholly. I should have. Dr. Grimes leaned forward. You think that tells why you're here now, Bill? Indirectly. Why did the dwarf give me the sword? Dr. Hayes said. It's your dream, Bill, not ours. Why did he? I don't know, of course. I, I can only guess. But my guess is that he did it because he had been ordered to. Ordered by Biltis. When people talk of kings and queens, princes and princesses these days, it's a stock figures and Machen, pictures in a 19th century book that everyone is too busy to read. But I think that Biltis is a real queen, and real queens have subjects, hundreds and thousands of them, even in a small kingdom, tens of millions in one the size of England. If a queen with real power had a sword written over with spells she couldn't read, she would look for someone who could, wouldn't she? And get him to read it for her? Right, chief, Shep said. It's your dream, Bill, Dr. Hayes repeated. He nodded. I'm not supposed to be explaining my dream, though, am I? I'm supposed to be explaining this. Why you got me here. Very well. Suppose you got me here to tell me about the spells on the sword. Dina said, You've left something out. Perhaps you didn't think of it. Why didn't Biltis simply bring you the sword and ask you to read it? He shrugged. You know that better than I. Possibly because I couldn't. I can read it only very slowly, and when I try, it's usually when we're going to camp or rest for a while. To read it, I have to be able to see it, and we didn't have any way to make a fire until you gave Sue the wand. Now we'll have a fire, and I may be able to puzzle out the writing by firelight. He turned to speak to Dr. Hayes and Dr. Grimes. Tell me something, please, and just be as honest as you can. It will mean nothing to you, but it's important to me. Have either of you noticed that Miss Biltis here and the woman in my dreams have the same name? What are you talking about? Dr. Hayes asked. Dr. Grimes said gently, They're not the same, Bill. This lady here is Miss Biltis from the school board, and the one in your dreams is, she referred to her notes, Biltis. Bill turned back to Dina. So that's the way it is. Yes. She gave him her impish smile. Don't worry, it won't hurt them. I wasn't worried, he said. Careful, Shep muttered. I have a sword, Dina told Dr. Grimes. It's out of my car. I'd like to bring it in and show it to Bill if no one objects. Dr. Grimes looked to Dr. Hayes, who said, What do you think, Tacey? Is he apt to become violent? Dr. Grimes shook her head. He's always been just as nice as pie, except playing that football, and he generally just catches passes and running then. You want to cut anybody, Bill? No, he said. Certainly not. Dina had already gone, seeming to have just melted away. Someone going to ask you to read that sword, you think, Bill? He nodded. Me too. You going to do it? I don't know yet. Dr. Hayes said, do you really think there may be writing on it, Tacey? An engraved blade, something of that sort? I guess we'll see. Bill thinks she's the same lady as in his dream, and I see why. She does sort of act like it. You think she got that mark on her foot, Bill? He nodded. I've been wanting to ask you about that. That first time you seen her? She had that foot down in that hole? Correct. She do that on purpose? Shep said. Yep. Bill? I don't know. Shep thinks so. If it was intentional, it may have been to explain a pre-existing mark on her ankle. A birthmark, like, Dr. Grimes told Dr. Hayes. You can see it through her nylons if you look close. He shook his head. You're being drawn into the patient's delusional system, Tacey. Okay, maybe I wasn't seeing nothing. Maybe it was just a shadow. 
What do you think, Bill? You agree with Dr. Haynes? Shep said. Nope, Dr. Hayes murmured. You must know deep inside that there is no such mark, Bill. I am Sir Oracle. When I open my mouth, let no dog bark. He smiled. Another possibility is that she may have wanted to warn me about the underground creatures, the cavern folk, or demons, or whatever we choose to call them. If she wanted to show me, not merely tell me, that, that they are real and that they're dangerous, she chose a good way to do it. Only, you went into the cave anyhow, Dr. Grimes said. Can I see your book? He passed it to her and she flipped it open. Dr. Hayes said, Some of the teachers here don't think your dreams are real dreams, Bill. They don't believe that they are dreams and not daydreams, in other words. Does that surprise you? Yes, he said. I didn't know they knew about them. Mrs. Durkin has been talking in the teacher's lounge, I suppose. Are they real dreams, Bill? Uh, I don't believe so. But I don't believe they're daydreams either. Dina returned, shutting the door behind her. Here it is. She held up a package, loosely wrapped in brown paper. I got it from a company in Georgia. She unwrapped it, ripping the paper. I had them send it UPS overnight. It cost a little more, but it was worth it. A glittering hilt protruded from a sheath of unadorned black leather. Here, Bill. I'll hold this part, and you can pull it out. He looked to Dr. Grimes for permission. She nodded, and he drew the gleaming double-edged blade clear of the sheath. Dr. Hayes said, Is that the sword you've been telling us about, Bill? He rose, weighing the sword in his hand. Dr. Grimes said, That isn't a magic sword at all, is it, Bill? He moved the sword, not thrusting or slashing with it, only testing its weight and balance. There's writing on the blade up close to the handle, Dr. Grimes continued. I've been trying to read it, only I can't. Not from here. Made in India, Bill said absently. Dr. Grimes laughed. Can't be no magic sword if it was made there, can it, Bill? Dina sniffed. It's my sword, and I think it's a very nice sword. It feels well in the hand, Bill said, and I can't believe that anyone would waste so much workmanship on poor steel. He seemed to be talking to himself. Dr. Hayes said, but not a magic sword. I hope you agree, Bill. I do, he looked up. It is becoming a magic sword, however. Shep said, good. Because I'm holding it. Magic is flowing from me into the sword. I didn't know that could happen, but it can. Dr. Hayes looked at Dr. Grimes, who said, Bill, I know you're just having fun, but you're making Dr. Hayes here you think you got something really wrong with you. It's not nice to fool people that way, and you could get in a lot of trouble just doing it. Because I said that? He smiled. Why is the Holy Grail holy, Dr. Hayes? Why does it perform miracles? It is the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper. Perhaps you can tell me, Bill. You don't know, Dr. Grimes? She shook her head. Because something, not magic, let's call it divinity, flowed from him into the cup. We know that sort of thing happened because once, when a sick woman touched him, he said that he had felt the power leave him. Dynamin is the word employed in the Greek gospel. Power, might. I might guess at the Aramaic word Christ actually employed, but I won't. Such things should not be guessed at. For me, the word is ligros. A glow like the light from blazing wood wrapped the blade of the sword as he pronounced Ligros. The magic power of death, the power to kill, he whispered. There was a knock at the door. You put that away, Bill, Dr. Grimes told him sharply. He ignored her. Dina called. Come in. The door opened, and Ms. Formier looked in with a worried smile. Sue Summer isn't in here, is she, Dr. Grimes? Shep said. Nope. One of my students told me she wanted to talk to you, and I thought, I hoped. Dr. Grimes said. I haven't seen her, Miss Formier. She's in my book for tomorrow. The chem lab supplies are stored in the basement, Mrs. Formier continued. I suppose you know that. Mr. Boggs sent her for some... Oh! 
Shep bound past her, closely followed by Bill, sword in hand. With a murmured, excuse me, Dina followed him, kicking off her high heels to run before she was three steps down the corridor. Me too, honey. Heavier as well as older, Dr. Grimes required most of the doorway. Pardon me, Dr. Hayes said. He was holding his pipe. Although it contained no tobacco, he thrust it resolutely into his mouth and clamped it with his jaw before striding away. I looked, Mrs. Formier called after them. So did Mr. Boggs. She's not there. They caught up with Bill and Shep in the furnace room, where Hector Fuente turned from his unsuccessful argument with Bill to demand, What are you doing here, lady? I'm Dina Biltis from the school board, Dina explained. We're here to rescue Sue Summer, if there's enough of her to rescue. You got to have a pass. And I do. I'll show it to you in a moment. Have you looked in there, Bill? The iron door? He had not seen it. He lifted the steel bar and threw it aside. It burst open, nearly knocking him down. The first hideous thing that rushed past him was not quite a corpse or a bear. The next had four legs and a multitude of arms, with an eye at the end of each. His first cut severed two, and they writhed on the floor like snakes. Others seized him. He broke their grip and drove his blade into the bulky, faintly human body. For perhaps five seconds, its death throes made it more dangerous than it had been in life. Someone was shooting, the shots loud and fast in the enclosed space of the furnace room. He scrambled to his feet, reclaimed his sword, and saw Shep writhing and snapping in the jaws of the nightmare cat with foot-long fangs. With her back to the furnace, Dina was firing a small automatic. Her last shot came as he took his first step, and the slide locked back. His blade bit the big cat's neck as though it had rushed into the battle of itself, dragging him behind it. He felt it grate on vertebrae and cut free, severing the throat and the jugular veins, and saw the great cat's jaws relax, and the pitiful thing that dragged itself free of them was so soon soaked by its own spurning blood. Laying aside the sword, he embraced the dying dog. Shep! Oh my god! Shep! Dina bent over them both, her empty gun still in her hand. Can we heal him somehow, Biltis? She said, You can, if you want to. And he repeated the words he had spoken once before, when he and Sue had walked past a certain house, whispering them into Shep's ear. The light of the blade shone through the clotting blood at that moment, purer than sunshine. The three of them found Sue two miles underground and killed the things that had been guarding her. He wanted to carry her, but she insisted, her voice shaking and sharp with fear, that she could walk. Walk she did, though she leaned heavily on his arm. Shep scouted ahead, sniffing the air and whining in his eagerness to be gone. After the first quarter mile, Dina said, This little flashlight's just about gone, Bill. See how yellow it is? Yes. Out our brief candle and all that. Can we get back without it? I think so. Remember the light from your sword? Do that again. I didn't think you saw that, he said. I see a lot. Do it again. He muttered to himself, and when Sue released his arm, he fingered the blade, and a sapphire light crept up and down the deep central groove some call the blood gutter, and spread to the edges after a minute or two, and trailed, by the time they had gone another quarter mile, from the point. He relaxed a little then, and hugged Sue, and tried to make the hugs say that they would make it, that she would see the sky again. Don't let them get me, Bill. It was a whisper from her mind, yet clear as speech. Oh, please, don't let them get me. I won't, he said, and prayed that he could keep his promise. Are you on our side, Biltis? Really, really on our side? Certainly, she said and grinned. Sue said, You shot them. You wouldn't have you one on our side, would you? Dina did not bother to reply. She wouldn't, would she, Bill? Of course not, he said. But I don't understand how she did it. Her gun was empty before we came in here. I had a spare magazine in my purse, that's all. One magazine? Dina nodded. Just one. 
As they walked on, he with an arm about Sue's waist, she weeping and stumbling, he wondered whether Dina had been telling the truth. She sounded as though she might be lying, and it inclined him to trust her. She had been careful with her voice when she said she was from the school board. The iron door was closed and latched. He lifted the latch, but the door would not open. He pounded on it with the hilt of his sword, which did no good at all, and the four of them threw their combined weight against it, which did no good either. When the rest were exhausted, he went back and down the long tunnel, leaving Shep to protect the two women, or perhaps Dina and her little gun to protect Sue and Shep. By the fiery light of his blade, he found something huge and cowering in a crevice. He persuaded it to come out by telling it, entirely truthfully, that he would kill it if it did not. When the two of them returned to the door, he called out to Dina not to shoot, saying that the thing came as a friend. If you will break this down for us, he said, we will leave this underground realm forever and trouble it no more. If you will not, or cannot, I will kill you. You've got my word on our departure and on that too. Will you try, or would you rather die here and now? The thing lifted the latch as he had, but the door would not open. It threw its weight against it, and it was bigger than any bowl. A crevice of light appeared. Bill put down his sword and got his fingers into it, and spread it as he might have opened the jaws of a crocodile, with veins bulging in his forehead and sweat dripping from his face, and the huge thing that he had found throwing its terrible strength against the door again and again until the steel bar bent and the boxes and barrels, the desks and chairs and tables that had been piled against it gave way. They rushed out, Shep, Sue, Dina, and he, climbing and stumbling over the fallen barricade, and the thing came after them, with Bill's sword in its hand, but Shep severed its wrist, Dina put a bullet into its single eye, and he drove his reclaimed sword between its ribs until the quillions gouged its scales. They found doctors Grimes and Hayes dismembering the cat-like monster that had seized Shep, and feeding the parts to a hulking old coal furnace, assisted by Hector Fuente and his machete. They left this old furnace here for standby when they went to gas, Dr. Grimes explained. They left coal, too. Hector here, he told us all about it. This old coal furnace don't need electricity, so when electric goes off, like in an ice storm, he can run it to keep the pipes from freezing. It is a great loss to science, Dr. Hayes added. But it is not my science. Besides, we would be accused of faking our evidence, the inevitable result of such discoveries. Dina said, They shut the door on us, Bill, and barred it and piled that stuff in front of us. Shall we kill them? He shook his head. The four of them went up the stairs and out onto the athletic field, past the volleyball court and the tennis court, and out onto the field on which the football team would practice after school. It's so good, good to be outside. Sue was trembling. Look, there's good old Juniper Street. It, it doesn't look the way it did. Not to me. It looks like a toy under somebody's Christmas tree. But, but it's Juniper, and I love it. I always will after, after that. Don't you love it too, Bill? Her eyes had filled with tears. I do, he said, though he was not looking at it. See the hardware store? And Phillips Fabrics? As Sue nodded, Dina whistled shrilly. A huge black bird plummeted toward the earth at the sound of that whistle, a minute dot that became a hurtling thunderbolt. They watched it land, barked out by Shep, watched Dina mount, and waved goodbye. Who is she, Bill? He shrugged. Who am I? Who are you? Bill's girl, Sue replied. Repeating those words to himself, he turned to look at her. Her eyes were of the blue light he had seen upon his sword, her disheveled hair the gold of the towers, the tilt of her nose and the curve of her smudged cheek filled him with longing so intense that he dared not kiss her. Are, are you sure, Sue? He struggled to control his voice and failed. She nodded without speaking. Then I want you to look higher than the hardware store and the fabric store. He watched her. No, higher. Off into the distance. What do you see? Mountains! 
Her eyes were wide. Bill, those are mountains. There aren't any mountains around here. There aren't any mountains like those for a thousand miles. That's right. He began to walk again. You're going? Yes, he said. I'm going. Then I'm going with you. Once they left the town behind, the mountains were no longer impossibly distant. One thing for sure, Sue said, nothing will ever scare me after what happened today. Shep wagged his tail in agreement. Me too. Right, Chief? William Watcher shrugged. I have a feeling this was the easy part, he said. And welcome back. I love dark, twisted, and gritty fantasy stories a lot, but I've got a big place in my heart for stories like this one. Stories of innocence and coming of age. I love how earnest this one felt. We don't see a lot of that very much in fantasy fiction, at least not here at Podcastle. A big thanks to Gene Wolfe and his agent Von Hansen for letting us run this one. Okay, feedback this week is for Patty Templeton's fun little romp, Fruit Jar Drinkin', Heart Cheatin' Blues, read by our own M.K. Hobson. The story about a bootlegging couple, uh, former couple, trying to smooth things out with a little bit of moonshine. Generally, people liked it. Bluetube said, Love this story from the outset. M.K. Hobson's reading added a lot to the listening experience. Being a Brit at first, I struggled to understand, but then I just went with the flow and enjoyed it immensely. I like the steampunk and the ingenuity of the little bots covering the tracks of the walking stills. I also like the interaction between the two main characters. If I had read this myself, I doubt I would have had the same sense of time and place. Definitely a case of audio working better than text. And Fenric said, Love the steampunk interpretation of Appalachian bootleggers. Love the moving stills. I accept holistically that they work, and I'm not going to get too distracted by the gears and cogs. My only complaint is that they didn't kill the sheriff. They don't run off this prison, so the longer sentence wouldn't have mattered anyhow. <laughs> Thanks so much to everyone who took the time to comment on this story. Free drinks for all of you at the Podcastle Bar. Just tell them Mer Lafferty sent you. While you're there, let us know what you thought of this week's story by visiting forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like what we're doing, and want to drop some money in our tip jar and make all our dreams come true so we can pay our authors, go to podcastle.org and make a donation. Thanks. And if you can't do that, please write a review on iTunes, blog, tweet, or tell a friend about us. Much appreciated. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, thanks so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in a week with <laughs> Roller Derby. Yeah, it's going to be something. Until then, dream baby dream. We'll see you next time. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Edgar Allan Poe said, 
Those who dream by day are cognizant of many things which escape those who dream by night.